Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq al and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we are streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following and liking our social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can also catch up with those episodes that you may have missed or just might want to revisit wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play, you'll find us at that same username, Radio Islam USA, at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to get into a conversation um, with a gentleman that we've had on before. We've had the pleasure of speaking with him before. We have on the line with us Dr. Chaz Thurber. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. His research and teaching focus on international security, conflict, and governance. His research examines the range of contentious global politics from nonviolent resistance movements to interstate war. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Thurber. So glad to be back. All right. So um, as anybody who has not been taking a sabbatical from life knows uh, that the leaders of North and South Korea have recently met in what has been uh, characterized, and rightly so, as a historic meeting. And we want to get your uh, to get get your analysis on on some of the on, on what this implicates. What are the implications, and what are the things that we should be looking for? So, um, if you could give some some of the background info uh, on the deal and, and what this meeting seeks to achieve. Sure. Well, these might not be bad times to take a sabbatical on life, uh, but this actually does seem to potentially be uh, a little bit of, of good news, um, that we have seen this turn in the behavior of Kim Jong-un and the North Korean uh, regime, that after a year of uh, one, a lot of nuclear tests, ballistic missile tests, as well as aggressive language exchange between him and President Trump, Really, since the Olympics in February, we've seen kind of this conciliatory turn, mediated in large part by the South Koreans, who have a large interest in seeing things take a more peaceful turn. Uh, But they have been acting as interlocutors between the U.S. and North Korea and have suggested that North Korea is ready to enter into some type of uh, negotiations with the United States and have convinced President Trump to agree to meet with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, at some point, uh, it seems, in the uh, near-range future. Do you think that this meeting now that has been facilitated by the, um, through uh, uh, diplomatic uh, representation of South Korea, that it has been in part, uh, that it's in part based on the fact that now North Korea is a legitimate uh, nuclear presence? Yes, I think this has uh, a lot to do with that. It has been U.S. policy for several administrations not to engage in direct bilateral discussions with the North Koreans. The idea that this would be rewarding North Korea's bad behavior, that this would elevate North Korea to the same status of the United States. Basically, that talking one-on-one with the president of the United States was kind of a big reward in and of itself for the North Koreans. Mm-hmm. And so if the president of the United States was going to do this, the United States wanted something in, in return first. And so this has been a change from the Trump administration. Frankly, I I think it's actually a pretty good one. I think it is better to talk than not in international relations. Uh, But it does go against uh, what we've seen uh, previous presidents do. Um, And whether that is the uh, quirky nature of President Trump himself, himself and how he sees himself on the world stage, I think it may be partly that. But it also has a lot to do with uh, the North Korean uh, behavior over the past year, uh, the fact that they have demonstrated uh, to have uh, such a strong nuclear capability, both in terms of the uh, nuclear warheads themselves that they have uh, detonated, as well as with their ballistic missile tests, 
that have led most analysts to believe that they could uh, launch a weapon that could reach the continental United States. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Now, this is not the first time that they have met. Uh, So we can go back to 2000, 2007, um, referencing the uh, the six-party talks, uh, United States, China, North, South Korea, Japan, and Russia. Um, This time where it's just... It, that 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 uh, meeting, the talks have just been constrained to the uh, Korean Peninsula. We have just now North and South Korea. Do you see President Trump as a, I don't want to say an ancillary figure, but do you see him as a, as a, as a party to the talks without necessarily being being named, or, or, or is he is he an impetus for the talks? I think he's an impetus for the talks. I think talking directly with the United States is something that the North Korean regime and Kim Jong-un himself really wants to do. Uh, so, yes, I, I think the presence of the United States is a very important part of these these talks. That said, I think you are very right to bring up the past precedents, uh, and that should make us very sober in our analysis and our expectations of what is to happen. This is not the first time that there have been talks between the United States and North Korea. Yes, this is different in the sense that we have the two presidents, in theory, who are going to sit down uh, next to each other, uh, and the fact that it's going to be a uh, bilateral or trilateral talk, including uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, we've seen this before, and in the past, agreements have been reached, but over time, both parties have then failed li- to live up to their obligations under those agreements, uh, and we've seen them break down. Uh, and I think there's a, a good cause for skepticism and concern and to think that that's probably the most likely outcome here is that we see a period of thawing of tensions between the two sides, but that at the end of the day, it's unlikely that we're going to get to a point where North Korea is willing to and actually does fully dismantle its nuclear weapons. It's just simply too valuable a tool in their, uh, in their national defense to really be willing to give that up, I think. You know, they've weathered so much as um, uh, they weathered so much going back from Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, father to grandfather um, and the pursuit of, you know, since since removing themselves from the uh, nonproliferation, uh, that that agreement, that that um, that that treaty um, mm-hmm. to to become a nuclear power. And it is only what do we have, like one instance, I think, uh, in South Africa that was, uh, but not a demonstrated nuclear power, but who, who backed away from having weapons. Uh, do you, I mean, I, I, is, it, is it foolhardy to think that they will actually let go of those weapons that they have worked so long to, uh, to, to, uh, to come into uh, possession of? Yeah, unfortunately, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Jim Stavridis, who is uh, uh, formerly, uh former U.S. commander of the, uh, NATO forces in Europe, was on uh, one of the cable net television networks the other day, and he said, you know, if I were the leader of North Korea, I would want a nuclear weapon, too. And I think he's right. Uh, so I, I think it is probably too much to ask, to expect that fully dismantling the nuclear program is something that the North Koreans are going to be willing to do. Nevertheless, I'm still a fan uh, of talking, uh, of having the two sides engaged in discussion for two reasons. One, you never know what options might be on the table, what kind of agreement could be reached, even if you were able to get the North Koreans to agree to something less than that, to uh, even if they're not conducting tests anymore, not launching ballistic missile uh, tests that fly across Japan, uh, that will create a much greater sense of security for all the sides in the region. The other is that when you have two nuclear-capable states like the United States and the North Korea, you want them to be in dialogue, to have some degree of transparency and back and forth to reduce the risk of some type of miscommunication that could escalate and lead to the one side or the other actually using those nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, the United States uh, diplomatic corps is positioned to effectively go into into talks with North North Korea? You know, there there is a lot of really smart, capable people uh, uh, and a, a lot of experience and expertise elsewhere within the U.S. government, think tanks, and academia. Uh, so I think it is uh, entirely possible uh, and should be the case that the U.S. delegation will be very well prepared for these talks. Two caveats to that is that we did see under Rex Tillerson's tenure at the State Department uh, this 
huge exodus of, of high-level personnel, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly the U.S. State Department is still recovering from that. The other is is that uh, you can have the best staff available for these talks of negotiation, uh, but President Trump has a strong view of himself as a negotiator, and we've seen numerous anecdotes in uh, newspapers of interactions with foreign leaders where he's gone off script. Most recently, a telephone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So at the end of the day, he is a president of the United States. What he says, what he does... Uh, at this meeting is subject to his own viewpoints and and desires, independent of who is there staffing him and uh, how they're prepared for this meeting. That's interesting because uh, there there are a lot of folks who are giving uh, giving his rhetoric, this this fiery rhetoric uh, rhetoric that he has uh, been known to uh, engage in, as as having a lot to do with um, with setting the the table, you know, with with setting the conditions for North and South Korea to come together and, and begin uh, dialoguing. Um, and it's also that same rhetoric that could very well be, you know, that could be a bump in the road, that, that could possibly, that could put things in jeopardy. Um, do, do you think that's that's a fair assessment? I'm not so sure of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can make an argument that in these Twitter wars back and forth. Kim Jong Un and President Trump saw kindred spirits in each other, and that has paved the way for them <laughs> talking. Uh, but to me, it seems more like it's been North Korea that has really set the terms of of this discussion. Mm. If this proposal of uh, bilateral talks had been made during the transition or in President Trump's first month in office, I think there's no way that he agrees to this. Why does he agree to it now? He agrees to it because North Korea first flexed a lot of muscle in conducting these nuclear tests and ballistic missile tests. And then it was North Korea who deliberately has made this pivot in the last four or five months to being more conciliatory. And President Trump has been basically following Kim Jong-un's agenda. That said, what I will give President Trump a lot of credit for, uh, because I think it was the right move, was when presented with this proposal of the possibility of bilateral talks, he, probably against the advice of most of his advisors, decided to take Kim Jong-un up on this idea. Uh, and I, I think that probably was a, it's certainly a risky bet, but I think it's a, a potentially good thing for, uh, to move towards more direct communication between the United States and North Korea. Mm. Um, do you think there is, a, there is a scenario where North Korea is accepted as a nuclear, uh, as a nuclear power? I mean, because we have uh, we have uh, India and Pakistan, um, uh, Israel, uh, even even though their policy is one of, what is it, uh, uh, intentional ambiguity, uh, but it is widely believed that they do have uh, in possession of nuclear weapons. Do you think North Korea could be added to that list? I think you're exactly right. If you were to ask my prediction of where things are at 10 to 20 years from now, it's something like the Pakistan model of, Everyone is really upset about it at first, you, um, but eventually uh, accepts this reality and tries to make the best of, of that situation. And I think if you're Kim Jong-un, you look around the world. You look at Libya and Gaddafi, who gave up a, a very early-stage nuclear program uh, in negotiations with the United States, only to be attacked by the United States uh, later um, during the intervention uh, during the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at what happened to Saddam Hussein. And then you look at uh, a case like Pakistan, uh, and you say, look, these countries who have nuclear weapons are, are, are better off. They are more secure. Uh, that's where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. And it was India, I think, um, who responded to the nonproliferation uh, treaty with uh, the, their logic was, um, I'm going to paraphrase, everyone else has one, so why wouldn't we? Um, is that is there is there a moral um, stance that's involved with, um, with with keeping nations from having nuclear weapons, uh, or is it is it really just security? Yeah, India has been, I think, the most vocal articulator of this argument of framing the non-proliferation treaty and generally efforts to prevent other countries from having nuclear weapons as being an example of Western, Northern uh, imperialism. Mm-hmm. 
I think that argument more often than not gets overshadowed by a view that the proliferation of nuclear weapons is is so dangerous uh, that even if it smacks uh, and can be uh, compared to a form of imperialism in some sense, it's still worth doing. Uh, nevertheless, uh, India makes this argument. It's interesting that I have, we have not seen Iran make this argument as much as you might think it, it could. Yeah. Uh, more often than not, countries have tried to make the argument instead that, that they're not actually seeking a nuclear weapon, uh, just uh, nuclear materials for, for civilian purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you think, uh, or do you have a position on uh, what this does for the balance of power? Uh, the, this, this meeting, and uh, not just, not necessarily related to the to U.S. North Korea relations, but North Korea and South Korea relations and their relationship with, with China. And um, do you see this as something that uh, the United States would be concerned about in terms of their presence, um, you know, uh, in that region? I think it really depends on the outcome of these negotiations. Hmm. If things end up playing out in kind of uh, small ball negotiations, some uh, relief from economic sanctions in exchange for uh, a commitment by North Korea to stop testing ballistic missiles or something like that, which I think is the most likely realistic outcome uh, of these negotiations. And I don't think that changes the balance of power in this region a whole lot. Mm-hmm. If the two sides strike some kind of long-term agreement for an end to the end to the war, which is technically in legal terms still ongoing just within in a 60-year ceasefire, uh, or even more dramatic, some commitment by President Trump to withdraw forces from the Korean Peninsula in exchange for denuclearization. That would significantly change the balance of power in the region. And I think that's one of the things that we saw uh, Japanese President Shinzo Abe in the United States a few weeks ago. That's one of the things that he is most concerned concerned about, the idea that President Trump could go to this meeting make some type of com- uh, commitment like the withdra- uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops from the region uh, in exchange for not enough from the North Koreans, uh, an unenforceable commitment to dismantle the nuclear weapons at some point in the future uh, that would really make Japan feel nervous. Mm. Uh, speaking of President Trump, he has mentioned the May 12th uh, deadline and uh, has shown a bit of a uh, back and forth or was looking looks like he's looking to to keep uh keep us guessing as to which which way he's going to go can you talk about the significance for those who may not be aware of of this particular date um what does what does this date mean sure you're talking with regards to iran and the iranian nuclear deal correct? yeah yeah we just kind of yeah just yeah. shifted our gears <laughs> exactly so this is part of this nuclear uh, agreement between uh Iran and the United States, as well as European countries, uh, Russia and China as well, mm-hmm. um, dates back to 2015, negotiated by the Obama administration, uh, that required Iran to give up substantial amounts of their the material, nuclear material that they could potentially use in the future to make a, a bomb mm-hmm. um, in exchange for sanctions relief. And what it requires the president to do, the U.S. president to do, is every so often certify uh, that Iran is abiding by this agreement, as well as to issue a waiver of sanctions, uh, those economic sanctions that had been previously in place prior to this agreement. So back in October, President Trump declined to certify the agreement again, um, pointed to some minor violations of the, uh, of the agreement that may have occurred, as well as argued that this ag- agreement was no longer in the U.S. national interest. And the concern, I think most observers think is, is quite likely is that on May 12th is the deadline for him to uh, renew the waiver for these sanctions, that he will not do that, in which case some of the U.S. sanctions against Iran would go back into effect. Um, and then it remains to be seen how Iran would respond uh, if the U.S. does that. Do you think, because he's made comments um, repeatedly saying that this was a bad deal, it should have, ne- should have never been made, do you think that his critique of of, of former uh, former agreements that have been made, uh, and not only uh, 
than impacting the United States, but have been made in cooperation with with other uh, allies and partner nations. Uh, Do you think this undermines the, um, I guess, the faith that uh, that the the rest of the world has in our ability to sit down and uh, and and make an agreement? Yes, I mean, you would think, especially in the context of President Trump hoping in the next few months to go to North Korea and hammer out, I would say, a similar type agreement, but it would actually, in fact, have to be far more ambitious because what you're asking of the North Koreans is to not just not make a bomb in the future, but to roll back an existing nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the concessions that the U.S. would probably have to make in order to achieve that would be far greater. The stakes are much higher there than were involved in the Iran deal. Uh, and yet the Iran deal is one where President Trump has decided that this is not in the U.S. interest, uh, so much so that he's willing to back out of an agreement made by a previous president. And we'll say there are a number of, act- number of actors in the U.S. in foreign policy who may not have been fans of the agreement at the time, uh, but in hindsight, given the fact that the U.S. had signed up to this, uh, given the fact that by most accounts Ar- Iran seems to be uh, pretty much completely compliant uh, with the agreement up to this point, uh, argue that even if you think that the agreement is not perfect, it is better to keep it in place at this point than to withdraw from it. Right, have nothing at all. Yeah. Um, So speaking of these these, these actors, so we have now um, Pompeo and Bolton, um, and do you think that their presence uh, now as National Security Advisor, New State, uh, Secretary of State, uh, that they are going to facilitate the formation of a more hawkish foreign policy with regards to uh, Iran and North Korea? Well, if you want to just start with, with Iran, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's fine. You would think they would based on their past comments and their past ideological views. Um, in terms of uh, things Mike Pompeo said as a member of Congress, as well as uh, his tenure as uh, CIA chief, uh, and then Bolton, of course, being one of the uh, most aggressive uh, pro-intervention advocates uh, within the George W. Bush administration. Uh, clearly, uh, and in terms of who they replaced in, in Tillerson and McMaster, those were two uh, figures who fell exactly into the category that I just described before. Of, uh, we're pushing the president to stay in their Iran deal, take them out, and put in their place uh, two new officials who you think are probably pushing the president uh, to to bow out of the, the Iran deal. So I think it uh, could substantially changed uh, the dynamics there. Um, that said, things clearly were not working with McMaster, Tillerson, and, and Trump. They were pushing back against what President Trump wanted to do, wanted to do uh, but as a result, he was also sidelining them. I mean, really interesting, when these negotiations start to happen with King jo- uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, he sends Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, over to meet with Kim Jong-un, not his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Mm. So as much... I think it goes both ways. Uh, There are very good reasons to be concerned about Pompeo and Bolton uh, in terms of their hawkish views on foreign policy. At the same time, I also think there are benefits to be had from having spokespeople, diplomats, the top diplomat in terms of the Secretary of State, in place now uh, who can speak for the president with more authority. I think the the last few months of uh, uh, Tillerson's tenure as Secretary of State were... The whole period was probably a, a disaster, uh, but it was really in the last few months where you knew that anything that Secretary of State uh, said with regards to U.S. foreign policy might be undermined the very next day by statements from the president. Hopefully you have less of that uh, under, the, uh, under the new configuration of cabinet members. Okay. You know what? Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a short break. And uh, Radio Islam family, we're talking with Dr. Chess Thurber. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. We've been getting his thoughts on uh, the North, North Korea and Iran. And we're going to pick up our conversation when we come back in just a minute.
Why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 1-T-1? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. And now we have an eight-year-old on the line. Welcome to Our World Today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to mypyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org slash caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at www.wcev1450.com. Make sure to follow and like our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And be sure to check out those episodes you may have missed wherever you get your podcast. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Okay, we want to get back into our conversation. We have with us Dr. Chess Thurber. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University, and his research and teaching focus on international security, conflict, and governance. His research examines the range of contentious global politics from nonviolent resistance movements to interstate war, and we've been talking about North Korea and Iran and just uh, United States foreign policy and, and just how things are unwrapping. So... Um, let me pose this question to you, uh, Dr. Thurber, uh, and that is with the there, there's been just a, a great history of, of tension between Iran and Israel, uh, one of um, probably the, the United States closest ally. And so my question is, do you think that their relationship, uh, their tension is at the root of President Trump's um, critique of the deal that was that was struck in the prior administration, and his uh, and 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 some of the conversation uh, that has been reignited about uh, taking a, a different stance with Iran. Yes, I think the Trump administration views Israel as a crucial American ally in the region. And when they hear Prime Minister Netanyahu argue that the uh, Iran deal is not a good deal and not in Israel's interest, uh, that that is meaningful criticism for them. Nevertheless, Netanyahu is making an argument that I think President Trump and many others around him 
believe themselves. And so for, even from a U.S. security standpoint, if they thought that this was uh, a bad deal, um, it's a bad deal with implications for Israel and a, a bad deal for the United States itself. I think one of the big critiques and worries about the deal is that when it provides sanctions relief to Iran, there is the fear that some of that sanctions relief is going to, as well as the funds that uh, that were tied up in bank accounts that were released, uh, will go to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, and be used for activities such as providing arms to Hezbollah or Hamas uh, that really specifically has a, a, an effect on Israel's security above and beyond uh, its impact on the United States. So I think that in part explains why Israel has such strong feelings on the, on the Iran agreement uh, and why some of Israel's biggest allies within the U.S. are therefore particularly concerned about, about the agreement and want to see Trump pull the United States out of it. Hmm. Now, we mentioned earlier that um, it, it is widely believed and accepted that Israel is uh, in possession of nuclear weapons. Uh, but what is known in the international community about, or is there, are there any, is there any hard data about their nuclear capability? It's the world's worst-kept secret. There is no doubt that they have nuclear weapons. Uh, in fact, it was kind of a somewhat of a scandal within Israel uh, several years ago, and then Prime Minister Ehud Olmert actually kind of slipped in uh, an interview and made reference to Israel's nuclear arsenal. Hmm. In terms of the number of weapons that they actually have, estimates are all over the place, usually somewhere between 50 and 400 weapons. Um, which is, a, I guess, a big difference between 50 and 400, but even right. 50 weapons, nu- when you're talking about nuclear weapons, uh, it's enough. It's a, it's a pretty powerful nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. And it's well known within the international community that Israel possesses these weapons. Yeah. And the, the there seems to be some, um, there there's some inconsistency when it comes to uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, once again, we go back to uh, to India, uh, and their reasons for wanting to have them, and um, and I believe you said, as you said earlier, that Iran. It's interesting that they did not make that same argument um, that everyone else has them. Why why shouldn't we? Um, do you think that this is going to that there's a capability for this turning into an actual uh, an actual war? I re- I really hope not. Uh, and I think it would it, it would take some pretty extreme events to to escalate to that point. Mm. I think even though you have some figures in the Trump administration who back in the early 2000s had been advocates of war with Iraq, uh, that things have changed since then. We're, we're no longer in this immediate aftermath of 9/11, where we were perhaps overestimating security risks to the United States and underestimating the risks of intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hopefully even those who are advocating for the Iraq war have learned some lessons from the experience. And that Iran is not Iraq. It is a country with roughly twice as many people, uh, capable military. This would be uh, an even costlier operation for the United States than what happened uh, in Iraq. Mm. So I think the odds of some type of direct hot conflict, uh, or at least kind of thinking of, Iraq as a template for uh, a conflict between uh, Iran and the U.S., uh, I think, I hope, is, uh, is too far, not something that we're likely to see. Yeah. Something that is, is more immediate con- concerning for me are the proxy skirmishes that we see around the region, uh, especially now in Syria, where you have uh, Iranian-backed militias uh, and members of the IRGC operating in Syria, where Isra- Israel is concerned that uh, they are, in fact, using Syria as a staging area for weapons that they can either use directly against Israel or funnel through proxies in Hezbollah or Hamas. We saw uh, within the past week Israel engage in airstrikes against targets in Syria uh, that they believed were stashing uh, Iranian weapons. Um, so will we see more t- more types of operations like that? Mm. Well, and, and if we did... Um, obviously, with uh, Iran being a much larger country uh, and with a more capable military, we would be looking at uh, an increase in civilian uh, casualties as well. And that is certainly not anything that uh, I don't think any anybody wants to see that. Um, 
I think so, and I hope so. Right, right. Uh, and, and let me ask this. Um, so uh, Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he recently gave a presentation, and he claimed that there were violations that were made, and it came out from uh, the response from, from quite a few uh, news out, outlets was that this is old information. This is information that was already already known. What do you think, uh, in your opinion, what was, the, what was the purpose of his presentation? Well, I think it was very revealing that he gave this presentation in English. As a, um, I think his audience for this presentation was the President of the United States. So if there was any doubt remaining, if he was still on the edge, especially after the visit from uh, President Macron of France last week, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who were pushing uh, President Trump to stay in the uh, Iran agreement, uh, that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu who wanted to push President Trump the other way. And so uh, I think you're exactly right in your characterization of the information that was presented. Uh, this is new news, but confirming old, uh, old assumptions, uh, that everyone believed that Iran up until 2003 was engaging in activities that are best explained by they're trying to build a nuclear weapon. Um, that they, that they had been trying to do that and had been telling the international community, no, no, we're not building a nuclear weapon. I think this is the assumption that the Obama administration was operating under when they crafted this agreement. In fact, this was the point of the agreement. Uh, rather than rely on Iran's words, why don't we come up with an agreement where uh, they get the material out of their country, such that if they were to decide in the future to, uh, to build a nuclear weapon, it would take them at least a year to reproduce that amount of material. Mm. And to have a, an inspections regime uh, that could help us ascertain that they, whether or not they might be cheating on that agreement and trying to start the process of moving once again towards a nuclear weapon. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's, it's widely known um, that President Trump is a, uh, he is a consumer of, uh, of news, of Fox News in particular. And yep. would you say that, I'm just thinking about your comment you just made, <clears throat> Excuse me. The observation that Prime Minister Netanyahu gave his presentation in English. Do you think that he is also aware of the president's consumption of news via that format, and that his own character uh, characterization of himself as a master uh, dealer, a master deal ma- deal maker, is is playing that he's playing to that to that assumption? Um, or, or that self-characterization? Yes, I think absolutely. I think it's so interesting to see generally the degrees to which foreign leaders around the world are observing President Trump, trying to understand his psychology and his mode of operating, and then appealing to that in the way in which they uh, engage him and the United States more generally. So whether that is uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, making a presentation in English, highly visual uh, in terms of the, the style of the presentation, whipping the curtain o- open to try to show this image of the, these documents, um, knowing that that will be rebroadcast on sympathetic news feeds uh, in the United States, that that is his way of communicating with the president. Before that, we saw with President Macron from France's visit uh, the extreme use of flattery, uh, masculine gestures, strong handshakes, his way of trying to understand the way President Trump works, what types of actions, what types of engagements uh, work best with President Trump such that you can try to achieve your your policy goals. Hmm. How how does one, uh, from an internal standpoint, uh, with the funk, we have have these different... um, agencies, we have different um, uh, actors internally that work to to engage in diplomatic relations around the, uh, around the country, you know, uh, through, the, uh, through the State Department, Secretary of State's uh, office. How do we work around this, this tail, uh, if you will, that's been picked up by the rest of the world uh, that seems to cut everybody else out? How do, how do we work around that? Yeah, I think it's getting increasingly difficult. I think for the first year of the Trump administration, you could make a strong case that you saw the checks and balances at play within the U.S. government, as you had 
actors from different agencies move information up the chain that would reach their leaders, and you'd have someone like the Secretary of State Tillerson or National Security Advisor McMaster uh, then use that information to make the case to President Trump uh, to do something that he wasn't uh, different than what he was going to do, to, to, to check him in some way. You know, Mr. President, pulling out of the Iran agreement now, even though you're exactly right, it's a terrible deal, but pulling out right now uh, might, be, might create even greater harm. But what we've seen since then is as President Trump has realized who within his administration is making arguments that he likes and who is making arguments that he doesn't like, he's gradually replaced those who are acting as a checks. Uh, on him uh, with those who share an ideological worldview more similar to his own. So I think we're seeing those restraints gradually being uh, eroded, uh, as well as, yes, uh, uh, seeing the power that the president has in the domain of national security within the U.S. government. This is not a place in which Congress uh, or the bureaucracy generally uh, has a lot of power. Uh, In national security, we've given the office of the president uh, quite a bit of power to make decisions unilaterally. Mm. Um, with with the assumptions, well, most many of us make assumptions that he is he is not informed uh, about a lot of the uh, issues that that he speaks on, and well, and that's just that's just the na- nature of speculation, or you know, we're characterizing him um, not being a traditional politician and coming into the highest uh, office in the land, um, that, that he is coming in, uh, in you know, not indoctrinated and, and as I said, uninformed. Um, do you think that in his time in office that he has become more informed or that he simply wants to, uh, as you mentioned, he's, look, he's looking for people who share the same uh, ideological and, and worldview that he has in its limitation or... Do you think he that he's actually picked up some things in his time, and um, and he's just looking for people who who see things the way that he does? I don't. Know, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So I think in terms of finding people who share his views, uh, it's not all that exceptional. I think we've we've seen it in past administrations as well, where presidents who have tried kind of early on uh, said that they want this. A uh, team of rivals, Abraham Lincoln style, of people who share different views, uh, uh, who will push back against what they want, and then over the course of their presidency, uh, decide that they're not that into that anymore, and instead replace those people with like-minded people. So I, I think that that is that particular part is not unique to President Trump. That said, I don't think that we've seen much. Uh, character or leadership change in President Trump in the course of his presidency. Uh, he is the same pr- Donald Trump that you saw in the campaign trial, campaign trail, the same Donald Trump uh, that uh, was inaugurated a year ago, is the same Donald Trump you get today. Uh, whether he has acquired more factual information about the world, I'm sure he has as a, pro- as a result of getting the briefings uh, that he gets. Uh, that said, he has not transformed himself into some super intellectual who is really interested in all the details of foreign policy. He is still someone who believes that he has these incredible negotiating business instincts. He doesn't need to sweat all the details. Just put him in the room with Kim Jong-un, and he will rely on his negotiating prowess to get a better deal than any president who has come before him. Yes, his his negotiating prowess. (laughs) Let me... uh... Let me uh, uh, switch gears once again. Uh, we're, we're winding down um, uh, in our, our time for the program, but I wanted to also ask you, uh, going back to India and Pakistan, um, uh, they have a, a history of tension. And what what are, or, or could you offer some solutions um, or uh, circumstances that might aid in the removal of those tensions? Hmm. Yeah, not, not for. Uh, let, let me say this, <laughs> applying the context of India and Pakistan and nuclear weapons to uh, the nuclear weapons issues with Iran and, and North Korea. Mm-hmm. When Pakistan tested its nuclear weapon in the mid-1990s and India responded in kind, uh, there was a lot of hand-wringing about how dangerous this would be. Nuclear weapons in one of the most dangerous regions of the world with these two rivals who had this long history of animosity and warfare. Mm -hmm. 
But since then, we haven't seen things change all that much. In fact, some would even argue that we've seen less conflict uh, between the two sides since they both had nuclear weapons, um, arguing that maybe the world would be a safer place if more countries had nuclear weapons, uh, because then everyone knows the consequences of, of their actions uh, being so high that they uh, act in a more restrained manner. That might be a little bit too far. When you're worried about non-state actors potentially getting access to nuclear weapons, it's probably better to have fewer nuclear weapon states than more. But it's also an indication that states getting nuclear weapons might not be the end of the world, this kind of panic situation that we often think of. Um, That just because there is a state that is your adversary, um, that you might think is untrustworthy, um, it's scary if they get nuclear weapons. but the consequences don't end up being that bad, that the prospects of retaliation, of uh, deterrence for the use of nuclear weapons are, are pretty strong. And states with nuclear weapons so far generally have done a pretty good job of acting in restrained ways to avoid escalation that might result in their use. Mm. So you feel like this is a, a good example of a nuclear deterrence uh, theory in work or working? Yes, I think so. Uh, look, uh, there hasn't been this path towards uh, great peace and harmony between India and Pakistan. Uh, we've also seen uh, terrorist attacks in uh, in India uh, that were believed to be supported and funded by Pakistani uh, intelligence services. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of, of bad there, a lot of things that are, are, are troubling that have resulted in a lot loss of lives. Um, nevertheless, uh, we haven't seen large-scale warfare between the two sides. We haven't seen those nuclear weapons being used. We haven't even seen kind of the equivalent of a Cuban Missile Crisis-type situation uh, where we think that their use uh, might be imminent. Uh, and so maybe that is uh, important to keep in mind when we look at a case like North Korea, when we look at a case like Iran. Uh, and we might all agree that the world would be a safer place if these countries did not have nuclear weapons. Um, Nevertheless, how far would you be willing to go to stop them from acquiring a nuclear weapon if that's what they really wanted, or in the case of North Korea, already have? Um, that that if you're actually thinking of, in the case of Iran, uh, the use of military force to prevent them from getting a nuclear uh, weapon, uh, that type of thing, uh, I think there are good reasons to think that the costs of doing so uh, aren't worth the benefits. I, I, don't, I don't think we really ever think about the... The, I think the ill will that is the byproduct, uh, which doesn't doesn't necessarily go away, uh, and it I think it tends to uh, it, it, it 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 tends to ingrain in a nation or people an even greater desire to get the same uh, weapons that they feel their uh, their that those who have attacked them have or who have conquered them or however you know you want to phrase it um that will doesn't seem to go away oh yeah and this is the great paradox right the more you thump your chest and posture and threaten to use military force against states who are considering the use of nuclear weapons the number one consequence of that is it convinces them of exactly why they need a nuclear weapon to prevent this type of aggression of ever being used against them in the future Mm -hmm. Mm And it's also interesting that the Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty, that one of its tenets, if I'm correct, is the denuclearization of those who of those who already have nuclear weapons. Is that correct? That's right. So yeah, getting back to this point that you've been bringing up about this uh, hypocrisy of some states having nuclear weapons and others not, this was certainly at the heart of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and is intended uh, big big picture to be kind of this deal uh, that countries uh, in the world that had nuclear weapons would agree towards, in the future, working towards a process of denuclearization, of giving them up, Mm -hmm. while the countries in the world that did not yet have nuclear weapons would commit to not trying to acquire them in the future. And since it has been in uh, in place, we've actually seen a pretty good track record of non-proliferation of small number of additional countries acquiring nuclear capabilities, but we have not seen much progress of the countries that already had nuclear weapons giving them up. Do and I don't think we're likely to, to see that much in the future either. Yeah, and that was going to be my question. Uh, it's, it's something on paper. 
but there's there, there hasn't been any real action uh, because I, I was I, I imagine that there's a certain element of trust that has to that has to be there when you're talking about uh, the United States and Russia and and, and the other um, was it three um, that that they would have to have to say as I get rid of mine you're also get, getting rid of yours and to to do that and to end up being wrong would put just put you in a position where now you're at the now you're the inferior you now you're at the mercy of uh, of someone else so yeah I don't I don't see that happening either uh, that, that's a great point I would say so when you get down to like each state having a small number of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and then making those kind of final steps towards an even smaller number or maybe even eventually zero yes there's a huge amount of, of risk that I think it makes that really 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 difficult if not impossible on the other hand, there's not really a good reason why the U.S. and Russia especially couldn't significantly reduce their nuclear arsenals. They have way more than they possibly need for any, uh, any real-world uh, potential use. Uh, and so this is a, a, a way in which I think uh, some of the countries that have nuclear weapons could make, make steps, make gestures towards that nonproliferation treaty commitment in a way that would probably make the world somewhat safer as well. Fewer nuclear weapons, that's less risk of uh, uh, weapons getting into the wrong actor's hands, less risk of some type of accident uh, or mishandling of the nuclear weapons. I think those would be real gains and don't come at the, the same type of risk that you're talking about if you're asking a, uh, a country to t- totally get rid of all its weapons altogether. Right, right. Well, um, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Thurber. Um, it has, uh, as, as always, I should say, uh, informative, and hope that we get a chance to talk to you again in the in the near future. I really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. All right, all right, Radio Islam family. We have been talking with Dr. Chas Thurber. Um, he is a uh, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. And once again, I'll tell you, his research and teaching focus on international security, conflict, and governance, and his research examines the range of contentious global politics from nonviolent resistance movements to interstate war. So we hope that you have enjoyed the conversation tonight. At this point, we want to go ahead and thank our engineer over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. Uh, We want to thank, who else should we thank? We should thank our uh, assistant producer uh, who produced this segment and has engineered in studio for us, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdumalik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision, Inc. So join us again next time for another edition of Radio Islam. And we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.